On the morning of the election 2012, we woke up to the discovery that this nation is divided right about down the middle, with almost 50% on either side holding two different visions of what America is, two different visions of where America is going, two different visions of what America's values are, and that has left us all, I suppose, up in the air. And in the months and years to follow this election year, we're going to be arguing and counter-arguing the direction the country is going to go in. Wind back the clock 150 years, at the end of the Civil War, this country was riven by strife. It ran down through homes, the division of opinions, as to whether that war should have been fought, on what basis that war should have been fought, what were the reasons for the fighting of that war, the threat of repercussions, of retaliation, of reprisals filled the air. In other words, our own immediate history and our longer distant history helps us understand what's going on in the story of David in this chapter. The Civil War has just ended. And now the future is up for grabs. There are questions, there are tensions, there are issues that are unresolved. There's the issue of David. There's a whole, a whole area of people, people, perhaps most of the population, who have listened to what Absalom has been saying, uh, David's son, and have bought into the lies and misinformation that Absalom has disseminated in his campaign for the leadership. David is a tyrant. David is not an impartial judge. David is not a caring shepherd of Israel. David is an ineffective leader. David has lost the plot. That was some of the language that was being used to describe David's role. And now that Absalom is dead, and people are looking around for the future, David is really now the only person that is fit to take the office of the king. And although there's been a clear victory, and although there will be a fairly decisive result, as we'll read in this chapter, things are still very much up for grabs. Now, I need to remind you that the monarchy in Israel was not an absolute monarchy. It was theocratic, that is, it was appointed by God, the king acted for God, and acted in the place of God, but the monarchy was a constitutional Monarchy. In other words, the king was tied to the law of God. The law of God was the law of the land, the Deuteronomic law that you find in the first five books of the Bible. And those laws were given, that constitution was in place to limit the powers of the king because God knows our hearts. God knows that power corrupts that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so the big question that we find them facing 
as we come to this little section in 2 Samuel 19 is the question, will we or will we not bring back the king? That's, first, that's my first point, the dilemma that is facing the kingdom, the dilemma of the kingdom. Not only will we bring the king back, but who will be responsible for bringing back the king? And underneath that general question, of course, there are all these other questions. If we go for David, will David be an effective leader? If we go for David, will David seek reprisals? Will there be recriminations? Will there be retaliation? What will David do to old enemies? What will David do with his old friends? Will David be able to heal the hurts and scars left in the nation? The competing ideologies. Will he be able to reconcile old enemies and bring them together and make them into new friends? These were the questions that were in the minds of the people. And that's what they're asking as you come to those verses we read from verse 9 onward. We first of all listen to the northern part of Israel. Very often that northern part is simply called Israel. The ten tribes to the north. Northern Israel are the first ones to give their assessment. They recognize, for example, something about David's past. They recognize that David was the one who delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. Verse 9. That he had fled from the land from Absalom. So he's absent, but he has a past. He has fled the land in order to allow Absalom to take charge of the kingdom. But we remember that when he was in control, when he was in command, he saved us from the hand of our enemies, the Philistines. They also recalled, verse 10, that they had been partly responsible for the rebellion, that they were very much part of the rebellion. Do you notice how they put it in verse 10? We anointed Absalom, whom we anointed over us. In contradiction to the law of God, the law of God said that God's anointing, God's appointed king, should be anointed by the prophets and installed by God's prophets into the position to which God had placed him. But they'd taken matters into their own hands. This had been a spontaneous democratic movement. Democratic movement. It, had been a, it had been a movement of the people. And they had appointed Absalom as their king. And now Absalom is dead. And the question is, who is going to bring back the king? And it's Israel, the northern tribes, who decide that they will take the initiative. I mean, we're going to have to face the music one of these days, they thought. So therefore, maybe the best thing for us to do is to get ahead of everybody else, make the first move, approach David, and ask David if he'd come and take up ruling again. So there's the first surprise. The first surprise is that the northern ten tribes, and David did not belong to any of them, are the people to make the first move, to bring back the king. What is surprising is the hesitation of the tribe of Judah. David came from the tribe of Judah. He was born in Bethlehem of Judah. And Judah was hesitant. Judah is slow. You, you, you notice, in fact, that King David 
having been approached by the northern ten tribes, has to go himself to the tribe of Judah. The Jews are reluctant, they are slow in this process to recognize and restore the kingship to David. And so he makes an approach to them through Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and he asks them to ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back? And he makes an offer. He makes an offer to replace Joab as the head of the army and to appoint in his place Amasa, who had been the commander-in-chief of the army of the rebellion. And that was a bold move on David's part. David is saying, here we are, if you think of a corporate conflict, two great corporations, there's been a corporate initiative to take over another company, and the other company have managed to rally resources and resist this in the end, and the leadership of the winner decides to take the moving force from the other corporation or company and make them the CEO. That would be a bold move, and this is exactly what David is proposing here, to take the leader of the rebellion and make him the commander-in-chief of the united tribes of Israel. Well, that's the picture we paint here. And, of course, what we have to see here is that Judah has a vested interest in this rebellion. For it was the Jews who rebelled against David, who was a Jew. It was the Jews who rebelled first. It was in Judah that the rebellion first had its foothold at Hebron. It was in Judah that Absalom was first proclaimed to be the king. It was uh, a man of Judah, David's chief advisor, who was the great betrayer, Ahithophel, who defected from David and joined the staff as chief of staff of Absalom, the, the rebel leader. And this man, Amasa, he had been a Jew as well. He'd been from the tribe of Judah, and he had become the commander-in-chief of the armies arranged against David. So here we have in this action of David, right at the very beginning of the story, a movement by David to bring national reconciliation by taking the commander-in-chief of the rebel army and making him commander-in-chief of the united tribes of Israel. And it, almost as it were to underline this great act of reconciliation and put it not simply on a political footing but on a theological foundation, David urges that everybody, all the tribes, meet him at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal has a theological background in the Bible that's very significant. It was at Gilgal that Israel camped when they first entered the Promised Land under Joshua. That's telling us that we are to view the return of, to power of David as a kind of new conquest of the Promised Land. Not only that, it was at Gilgal that the children of Israel renewed their covenant with God after their wanderings in Sinai. It was at Gilgal that there was a mass circumcision. Not something I'm encouraging here today, you'll be glad to know, but it was like a mass baptism. It was an outward sign that the people had rolled away their reproach, had 
put the past behind them, had reconciled, been reconciled to their God, and were now committing themselves to God's way. And it was at Gilgal during Samuel's time that there had been a great renewal of the national spiritual life of Israel. So David calls them to this place and he says, let's go back to Gilgal. Let's roll away our reproach. Let's put aside all of our past. Let's understand that restoring the king of Israel is like doing something, is doing something far greater than simply a political movement. We are actually recognizing the Lord's anointed. It is God's, it is God's name that has been that has been sullied here. It is with God that we need to be reconciled ultimately. Simply bringing the king back would be useless. It would be a political action without the spiritual implications. David is challenging them to come back to Gilgal. Now it's at this point that we move from the dilemma of the kingdom to see the grace of the kingdom. For it was at Gilgal, you see, that the children of Israel learned that behind their national life, that what gave them unity in their national life was not their decision, was not their action or their movement, but ultimately was God himself. It was God who was behind this action. That's what David is saying. Ultimately, it is God who will bring us together. It is God who will reconcile us to himself. There are issues about which we can do nothing. There are areas that are needing addressed about which we can, we, we can, we are inadequate to do anything. David is saying, God needs to do this work of reconciliation. Now we come to this story with our New Testament eyes and we remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on this matter of reconciliation. And he says in that chapter, when he's talking about reconciliation with God, he says, all this is from God. All this is from God. That is, the whole business of putting people right with God when they've been in rebellion against him is God's work. God from first to last. Because the problem of reconciliation with God is not simply that we have a problem being reconciled with God, not simply that we have a problem with God the way the children of Israel had a problem with King David. It's not simply that I've been listening into what people have been saying about King Jesus and the misinformation and the misrepresentation and the lies and deception the devil pours out whenever he talks about God. That isn't the only problem that's needing to be resolved here. My view of God is not the only issue that needs to be resolved in this business of being reconciled to God. There is God's view of me. There is the fact that not simply am I at odds with God. It is that God is at odds with me. And the reconciliation about which the New Testament speaks is concerned not simply with me being reconciled to God, but with God being reconciled to me. And Paul says all this is of God. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not simply getting us in line with him, but God is in Christ dealing with the fundamental problem, which is the hostility of God to me. Not only my hostility 
to God. David brings it all back to Gilgal to put it in the theological framework and to say to us, ultimately, God is in the business of reconciliation, of reconciling people who have been alienated to his Messiah, alienated from his King, alienated from his Christ. Now that's the theological foundation of what happens next. For what happens next are three people or groups of people that David encounters on his way back. The first is this man, Shemai. Earlier on this morning I was talking to the boys and girls downstairs and I asked them whether they remembered Shemai. They did instantly. They remembered him immediately. I asked the nine o'clock service. They looked glazed over at that point. I'm looking at you and you're laughing at them, but you're glazed over as well. You don't remember Shimei. They did, because Shimei is quite an exciting character. You meet him earlier on when David is escaping from Jerusalem. He's, he's on the run. He and a few of his men are taking their leave of the city. They're going down the hill from Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, over the Mount of Olives, and out into the countryside, headed for the Jordan to get away as quickly as they can. And as they're going on their journey, they're followed by this man, Shammai. Shammai comes along and he starts to swear and curse and blaspheme old David on his way. He follows them along the road, swearing and cursing, and the air all around him is turning quite blue as he pours out his curses and oaths on David. And that's not all he does. The kids remembered this this morning. That's not all he does. As he's going along the road, he's throwing stones at David the whole way, up the hill, down the hill, out in towards the Jordan. He follows them along the road, throwing his stones and calling down the curses of God. And they remembered the name of the other guy, Abishai. I said, what did, what did he want to do? You remember Abishai? They said he wanted to cut him in pieces. Yes, even back then, Abishai had a solution to all the problems of this man. He wanted to dice him up, dice him up and send him home. David wouldn't let him then and David won't let him now. Well, this is the man who reappears. If you look at verse 16, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Bahurim, hurries and comes down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Why is he coming? Because he's been part of the rebellion. Because of the swearing and the cursing and the stone throwing. That's why he's coming in. He knows now that things have changed. David is back in power. He's coming back into the promised land. He's going headed towards Jerusalem. He's going to be king again. What is he going to do? So he comes with a thousand men. David needs men. He brings a thousand men. It's a bit of a talking point. He comes to the king and he says, uh, look at verse 19. Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. D David, uh, I don't want you to remember you know those things I said, I really, you know, I'd had a bad night, I, I hadn't slept well, and I'd been overeating, and really things, things are really not being very good these days. I'm saying things that I don't really mean, and, oh, you know, please, I just want you to forget that that ever happened. And, I, and the stone, or oh, the stone thing, well, <laughs> the stones were there, you know, and next minute they're in my hand, and next minute they're, th I mean, they just, it just happened. I know, it, I know it lasted a long way, over about 30 miles down to the, but you know, just, I couldn't 
help when I was, please forget, please forget, David, that I ever did any of that stuff. It's a ridiculous thing to ask, but he got, does come to the crunch in verse 20 when he says, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Now, the couple of things you have to do as you read this. One is you have to say, I'm not sure that this is what we would call heartfelt repentant repentance on the part of Shimei. Uh, he, he really is doing his best to get back into David's good books. And his motivation probably isn't right. And ultimately, at the end of the story, David has to warn his son Solomon that this man is still still active in a rebellious capacity and so on. But what we have to do as we read the story is to see how it's left. A lot of those things are not dealt with here. It is left standing. Here is a man who has been a rebel, who comes to the king and who says, I have sinned. And David, who knows all about sin, David who knows all about breaking the law of God, David who himself deserved death, David recognizes that confession. He had said the same thing, I have sinned against God. Kick in this other guy, Abishai. Oh, we should really kill him, David. Uh, the, the same solution for everything. These two brothers, Abishai and Joab, you know, we know the law. That's what, that's what Abishai represents in this story. Rabbishai actually represents the law here. Here is this man, Shemai. He's a rebel. He has cursed the king. That's against the law of Moses. Cursing a leader prohibited by the law of Moses. He has committed treason. For both of those offenses, the penalty of the law is death. Here is Abishai, and in this story, he represents the law of God, screaming out its implications. Here is this man, he stands before the king, and he's guilty of treason and cursing the king. The law says, die. Abishai says, die. He says what the law says. The law condemns. The law condemns. The law condemns. And it's against that background that David rebukes Abishai and forgives Shimei. Forgives him. And what we're left with in this story is this problem. A problem that's going to last throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It's going to last throughout the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures until it's resolved in the day of fulfillment. It's resolved, and you can read the resolution in Romans. It's resolved there. The question is this. How can a God who takes his law seriously... How can a God who is holy and who has given us his law and means us to take his law seriously, how can this God ignore the implications of his own law? How can it happen? And the resolution in the New Testament is this. God can be just and at the same time justify the guilty. You see, according to the law, to be just means 
to judge the guilty, not justify them, not let them off, not pardon them, but judge them. And the whole message of the gospel is that God is able to do this. He's able to deal with someone like this rebel leader here. He can justify him on the basis of what Jesus did for us in living the life of righteousness and obedience he lived on our behalf and of enduring the penalty of death on the cross which we deserved. Paul's able to say that because Paul or Saul as he once was, Saul of Tarsus, was a Benjaminite too. Came from the same tribe as this man, Shemai. And he too had acquiesced at the stoning of one of Jesus' servants, Stephen. And he too had cursed the name of the Lord Jesus. And he too had followed the Christians. Those who are part of the body of Jesus had followed them and had followed them breathing out oaths and curses. And hounding them to their very death. Saul of Tarsus understood Shimei's situation because he'd been there. And Saul of Tarsus came to understand, as the Apostle Paul, that God justifies the guilty, God pardons the guilty offender. But there's a second group of people who come here. This man, Mephibosheth, and his servant, Ziba. We've met these two characters before. Mephibosheth, grandson of King Saul, David's old enemy, son of Jonathan, David's old friend, disinherited. When the new regime takes over, David pardons him, returns all his inheritance, his lands, invites him to become part of the palace where he eats with the king and Ziba, his servant, is given the job of managing the estate. That's this man, Mephibosheth. And when David was fleeing, it was Ziba who came and who showed some faith in David by bringing food and wine and spreading a table and feeding his little party of men who were going with him into exile. It was Ziba did that. But Ziba was one of these people who can only look good by making others look bad and he had maligned the name of Mephibosheth the last thing we heard about Mephibosheth is that he had allied himself with Absalom and had hoped that Absalom would restore Saul's throne to him Saul's successor that was not to be of course but that was Ziba's story but now we learn something about we, we learn what Mephibosheth has to say about his own story. Why had he not followed David into exile? And we're told some interesting things about him. Look at verse 24. That all the while David had been in exile, this man had lived as if he was in exile. Look at verse 24. He had neither taken care of his feet. You have to love the Bible sometimes. I mean, why did we need to know that? He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes. He must have been stinking. After all these years of, of, of the rebellion, he must have been absolutely humming. I mean, here was a man who's uh, the, only, the only thing he could do in a sense, his own little personal private, behind the scenes, 
little protest against the Absalom regime was to live as if he was on the run without time to do any personal hygiene or any of these other little things that it's good if you do them. Can I just put that positively to you? Make sure you're doing these things, especially on Sunday mornings when you're coming here. We had one dear man, we had one dear man in the church in London who, uh, he wasn't exactly homeless, but, but uh, Fred came to every service and there were, we had to establish an air exclusion zone around Fred because for about eight feet round Fred, the smell was overwhelming. But one of the things that used to really encourage my heart, I have to say this, is the number of young attractive people who went out of their way not only to welcome him, but even to hug him. Nobody else would have done that, including me, and even sit beside him. I was always glad I was in the pulpit because there was some distance away. Anyway, that's just a little thing that I just threw in there for nothing. Anyway, back to the story. <clears throat> here you have to these two men. Here, here are these two men. Ziba, who seems to be out for himself, has black, blackened the name of his master, Mephibosheth, but has shown some faith in David. Here is Mephibosheth, who by living as if he's in exile, when David's been in exile, he's shown some faith in David. But why has he not come? You know, I've, I've read about 30 commentaries about, on this. 30 commentaries. And I think the commentaries are fairly evenly split right down the middle, like the Civil War and like the last election here, split right down the middle as to whether Mephibosheth is good or bad. Whether this is just a made-up story or whether this is genuine. And I think it's meant to be like that. I think you're meant to look at these two men, Ziba and Mephibosheth, as conflicted believers. Conflicted believers. They believe, but Mephibosheth, he had gone into silence, deep cover, during Absalom's regime. Oh yes, he had done this little protest thing, but who knows what you do, you know, at home, Nobody really knew that he was doing this. He just lived like this. This was his little way of saying, I'm on David's side. But in public, if anybody would want to go near him, in public or in terms of actually making a stand for David or finding a horse to go and follow David, he was a man with many lands. He was a, a man with estates. He could have found another horse to go and follow David. He didn't come out, as it were, on David's side. Some of you are like that. Some Monday morning, tomorrow. You'll get into conversation early off on the office and people will say, what did you do at the weekend? You'll tell them what you did on Saturday. You may tell them what you're going to do this afternoon. You may tell them where you're going to eat after the service here, but you won't mention that you were at church. You know, I know that. I know that. See, I've been here nearly two years and... I know the expressions in your face. Do you know I nearly catch the eye of everybody in this congregation week by week? And when I'm preaching, I'm looking into your eyes. I see your reaction. I see what some of you are going through. I can sense when you really don't want to hear what's being said. I can tell when you put this candy into your mouth as well, but that's immaterial. That's okay. Some of us are conflicted believers. We're like Zeba, we're like Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth in deep silence, Zeba, who's got, kind of, you know, he's got other motives there, he wants, he's looking out, he's on the lookout for number one, you know. He's got another agenda. He believes, 
Both of them believe. And I think that's why in the end, David, instead of giving the holy state back to Mephibosheth or letting it stay with Ziba, splits it up and says, you can both have a bit of it. Both of them, just have it down the middle and take it. I think David sees that. He's a wise king. And then the third and last person is this man, Barzillai. Barzillai. Barzillai's 80. He really plays on that, by the way. Did you notice that in the text? He really plays on it. I'm really old now, he says. I can't taste anything. You know, I can't even see very well. And, you know, music now, I don't know. I don't know music of women or men or, or whatever. I'm just not into that anymore. I'm just, I just, really, I just, do you know, I'm stuck in a rut. I just want to stay at home and die at home. I really don't, you know, great offer to go and live in Jerusalem. Great offer to live in the palace and have all that royal food. But uh, I just want to die at home. Don't want to come. That's fair enough, isn't it? Barzillai, as far as we know, never lifted a spear, never drew a sword, never rode a horse, never fought in battle for King David. But Barzillai did what he could. He was a wealthy man, and he supported David materially. He did what he could. And David rewarded him for his faithfulness. Now, as I look around here today, I can see people. I know you come in week by week. You don't talk to other people. You probably don't know very many people here. You may be in the category of this first man, Shimei, who was an outright rebel. And you come here week by week. Some of you come for months. And I can tell, I can tell from the look in your face when I'm preaching, can also tell when we're singing hymns that you're uncomfortable. Maybe because of that past, maybe because of what you've brought with you. Maybe you're not really fully persuaded that if you came to King Jesus, that he would want to know about your past or that he would, wouldn't hold your past against you. Maybe all those issues and things you've done. Maybe you're saying to me, Liam, if you only knew what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. But this story is in the Bible about the Lord's Messiah, King David. This is in the Bible to teach you about the Lord's Messiah, the one, the Messiah, King Jesus. To say that he takes people, whatever their past. Even if you ran along sto throwing stones at Jesus like Saul of Tarsus did. Even if you've been one to call down from heaven curses on the name of Jesus. Even if you've broken every law of the Ten Commandments. He still today will say, I forgive you. You say like this man said, I have sinned. I have sinned. He will pardon you. He will pardon you. He will pardon you of your sin. Are you a conflicted believer? You believe, but there are all these other things. The king will pardon you. Are you a faithful believer behind the scenes? Generous with your money? Perhaps you're just a prayer supporter. You pray for the work of God. 
king sees. The king knows. The king will reward. The big question was, who's going to bring back the king? And it's put to the people of God. Who's going to bring back the king? You're going to recognize the king in your life, bow to him today as a people, as a church, as a congregation. Are we going to acknowledge the kingship of King Jesus? Are we going to make him in our hearts as well as in our, in our praises the center of our corporate life? Am I going to make him the center of my personal life? We're going to bring the king back so that the church is known to be a people that is driven not by the opinions of the world but by the opinion of King Jesus. That the church is a corporate group of people who are not driven by the bottom line that are driven by the word of King Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts and in this remarkable transaction we call preaching where your word as it were comes from a living voice and through living eyes into our eyes and into our ears you use it to reach beyond the exterior of our lives to those hidden depths the things that no one else sees or knows about that you know we pray today that you would reach down into hearts that feel alienated from you for one reason or another and that you would reconcile them to yourself. Thank you that all this is from you. You take the initiative. And today you put on the table before every one of us this offer of pardon, this peace treaty, this means of reconciliation, that in Christ Jesus, we who have been alienated for whatever reason can be put right with you. We pray that you would take your rightful place in our minds and hearts and congregation and country as the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.